This is the Get Healthy 360 Podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today we have with us returning orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Dustin Schuett. Today what we're talking about is hip pain and specifically hip replacements. It's something that frequently happens when people get older, they get hip pain and they get a hip replacement, but there's a lot of mystery as to what happens when you replace someone's hip and what can you do after um, you have a hip replacement. So Dr. Schuett, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me back, Chris. Good to be back. So someone's having hip pain. What are some of the conservative things that people should be doing when they start having these symptoms? So one of the first things we look at for uh, hip pain is kind of trying to figure out exactly where the pain is coming from. Hip arthritis pain usually presents as pain kind of radiating into the groin. A lot of people get worked up for a hernia or something like that just because of the location for the pain. Um, So first thing is just confirming the diagnosis with a good history, physical, as well as uh, x-rays. You know, if it is coming from hip arthritis early on, we start talking about you know activity modification, uh, reducing uh, weight bearing or loading activities, so switching to something like elliptical, biking, pool, things like that. Uh, physical therapy can certainly help with strengthening around the hip girdle. Uh, if they're overweight, we recommend losing weight. Every uh, you know pound of weight you carry in your abdomen is about another five pounds of weight going through your lower back, and it translates straight to the hips. Um, as well as medications such as Tylenol and anti-inflammatories. Those are kind of the key aspects of early conservative management. So why is it that that abdominal pain or abdominal weight translates to significant pain in your hip, especially when you said one pound of belly weight is five pounds in your hip? Sure. So the biomechanical studies, so the weight that you're carrying on your in your belly, abdominal weight out in front of your center, the way that it presents or the way that it loads your your axial spine is it ends up increasing about five pounds of weight due to the pressure being farther out. It's kind of the same concept as if you're holding a bottle of water close to your chest, it's a lot easier than a bottle of water farther out away from you. Uh, So the farther out it is, the longer the lever arm, uh, not to get too much into physics, but it translates more weight onto the back. And that weight on the back is loaded directly onto the, through the hips in the standing position. Are there any sports that translate into early hip breakdown or degeneration? It's an excellent question. Uh, we always talk about a thing called the hockey hip. Um, you know, there are people that have certain ap- uh, anatomic abnormalities called femoral tabular impingement, which is a fancy way of saying that instead of the hip ball being perfectly round or the acetabular cup being perfectly kind of receptive of a perfectly round ball, they have impingement of those bony surfaces, um, especially in positions of forward flexion, like leaning forward, like picture somebody skating, playing hockey. Um, so hockey is definitely associated with a little bit higher rate of hip uh, pathology. Um, there's some evidence that increased distance runners may have that. Uh, rugby players can have it as well. And there's also higher instance in uh, military uh, personnel for uh, hip arthritis at a younger age. So if someone's having hip pain, let's start on the conservative end. What are some of the conservative things someone can do to take care of hip pain? First, early on, anti-inflammatories, rest, stretching, uh, physical therapy, again, to work on the hip girdle strengthening, as well as improving kind of core muscular, improve any uh, posture abnormalities. 
avoiding any activities that cause significant worsening of pain. You know, if you're somebody loves to CrossFit and doing, you know, deep front squats, causes your hip pain to get worse, avoiding something like that, obviously, uh, as well as, you know, just overall healthy diet, healthy weight, and offloading activities such as swimming, water aerobics, elliptical, bicycle. And what do you count as a healthy diet? So healthy diet is basically, you know, the general diet that if you were eating it and your doctor saw you eating it, is, they would not be upset or not have issues with it. So a you know, good amount of fruits and vegetables, good amount of protein, uh, minimizing the, you know, highly processed foods, the carbs. You know, you had a, uh, I've had a couple of guests in the podcast the last couple of episodes that have talked about healthy diet. And I think kind of referencing back to that, they're obviously more experts than I am, but in general, you know, stuff that you it looks healthy and is more natural, less processed. There seems to be a consensus amongst everyone that uh, highly processed fast food is not good for you. I would entirely agree. <laughs> so then let's say someone tries a healthy diet. They try physical therapy. What, what is your threshold for offering someone a hip replacement versus not offering a hip replacement? The big thing that I look at is I look at their x-rays as well as their symptoms as well as their physical examination. Um, if they've got significant joint space narrowing on x-ray and they start having some extra bone, we call it osteophytes, just extra bone your body develops to try and offload the hip joint. Uh, when they start seeing that and then their symptoms correlate with what I expect for hip pain. So typically groin pain or pain right around the hip girdle itself. And then their examination starting to have limited range of motion, things of that nature. Those are the times where I start thinking about it. But I always tell patients, a hip replacement is ever a surgery I tell you, you have to have. Now, the exception to that, if somebody has a bad hip fracture, a lot of times we'll do a hip replacement for a hip fracture. Uh, but for hip arthritis, it's when their symptoms become debilitating, which is very different from person to person. I see them 20, 30 minutes at a time in clinic. I don't know what their day-to-day life is. You know, when it gets to the point where they're saying it is affecting their quality of life and their ability to do what they want to do, regardless of what that is, uh, and it matches up with the x-ray and the you know, physical examination, then I would say it's reasonable to consider, but it's, again, it's the patient driven process. It's their decision. So it seems like that it's part of your body. They're replacing, someone's replacing part of your body. So if you're, let's say I needed a hip replacement and I know we covered this in the hip or I know we covered this topic in the, um, in the knee lecture, but I think it's worth covering again. If someone's looking to have their hip replaced, it's a, it's a large procedure and, and I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, but I would imagine it's a technical procedure that requires a high degree of skill to do. So how does someone go about choosing who does their hip replacement? So the big key you want to know as far as the hip replacement, there's better outcomes that people do 50 or more hip replacements a year. So you want, like anything else in medicine, you don't want to go have a procedure done by somebody that dabbles in that procedure, occasionally does that procedure. You want somebody that that's a primary focus of their practice. So a big key is looking for somebody that does more than 50 a year, that has a good amount of experience, um, there's a certain subset of orthopedic surgeons, including myself, that are fellowship trained in joint replacements. So we do a full year of fellowship in knee and hip replacements. Uh, those surgeons tend to be surgeons do a much higher volume and also do a large amount of revision surgery, uh, which revision surgery is a good way to kind of see what didn't go right. So revision surgery is where somebody's had a problem with a prior joint replacement, whether it's an infection or something went wrong biomechanically. Um, and when you kind of do those surgeries, you learn a lot about, all right, this is what, where this hip went wrong. This is how I, how to do this better. This is how to avoid that. Um, so, you know, I do a lot of revisions on surgeries on or patients who have surgeries that I didn't do their surgeries. Uh, and you kind of see, kind of learn from that saying, all right, this is the best, you know, better ways of doing this. So I think big picture, you want somebody ideally that's fellowship trained in hip replace, hip and knee replacements. And that's somebody that does at a minimum of 50 uh, hip replacements a year. So if someone gets a hip replacement, now, 
clearly it, it's unlikely that everyone's going to find someone who's fellowship trained in hip replacements. So what is the reasonable recovery period? And how do you know if there's something wrong with your hip replacement? I should say. So by and large, hip replacements actually cover faster than knee replacements. Uh, majority of my hip replacement patients are getting up and walking the day. Well, they're all getting up the day and walking the day of surgery. And the majority of them say their hip actually feels better and they have less pain after a surgery, which is obviously a big surgery. You've seen some of these surgeries, I'm sure, throughout your residency and your career. Um, they're feeling better afterwards immediately than they did before the surgery. Uh, most patients of mine stay in the hospital overnight. There's a lot of places where patients have a hip replacement and go home from the uh, hospital or surgery center that same day. Typical recovery, I tell them expect to use walker, crutches, something like that for a couple of weeks. And then I don't want them to do anything strenuous as far as, you know, heavy lifting or activities for about six weeks. Uh, range of motion comes back pretty reliably with a hip replacement. Uh, and strength is kind of the biggest part. It takes about six months to a year to get back. In um, overall, big picture following a hip replacement, if there's something you're concerned about, you should contact your surgeon about it. You know, I've done thousands of these. Most patients, it's their first or second joint replacement they've ever had, so they're going to have questions. I'll just give them all my email. Just say, hey, please contact me. Any questions at all? Um, you know, big worrisome signs are increasing pain after the pain had been decreasing, um, any redness or drainage around your incision, um, and then overall just kind of systemic problems as far as just feeling ill, feeling sick, things of that nature. Now, in, in the scope of medicine, there are people like yourself who've, you've done a full, you've gone to medical school, you've done an orthopedic surgery residency, and then you have even more training specifically in joint replacements. Now, there are other orthopedic surgeons with a lot of experience, but joint replacements are not their main, the, their main thing, or they just don't do a lot of it. Now, I, I have seen this, and I'm sure there's someone listening to this where their orthopedic surgeon probably did the best that they could, but it just doesn't quite feel right. So I, and I, I have seen this where their, their doctor will say, no, no, I think everything's fine, but the patient just has a feeling that there's something not right. What does that patient do? So I think the big key to remember is that, you know, 95% of people have a hip replacement and that's whether it's done by a fellowship trained surgeon or non-fellowship trained surgeon. So across the board, 95% of people are very happy, very satisfied. And 20 years, their hip is still in and working well. It's the most successful surgery in orthopedics. Um, so by and large, overwhelming majority of people that have somebody competent doing their hip replacement, whether that is a generalist or somebody who did another fellowship or did a sports or a, uh, a hip and knee replacement fellowship is going to have a very good outcome. Uh, if they feel like their hip replacement is not doing as well as they want, I think a big key is going back to either their surgeon or another orthopedic surgeon, getting x-rays, see if there's anything going on there, any cause for concern, and getting an idea of what's going on. You know, if you're going back to the same surgeon, they're saying, no, it's fine, no, it's fine. It's never a wrong thing to ask for a second opinion to have somebody else take a look at it. Um, ideally, the second opinion it should be somebody who is fellowship trained in hip and knee replacements, or at least somebody that does a very high volume of them. Uh, and has for a while to have a good uh, background as far as what to uh, base their treatment plan and recommendations on. And just to get some insight, how hard is it to do a revision surgery versus um, the primary or first hip replacement? Yeah, on average, it takes me about twice as long, one and a half to twice as long to do a revision surgery as it does a primary surgery. It depends on what we're revising, what we're doing the revision for. Um, it's definitely a more complex surgery, and I person in mindset, you know, unless you are somebody who does almost all joint replacements and has a very high volume of revisions in your experience, that they should mostly be done by fellowship trained uh, joint replacement surgeons. And what can someone do to optimize the recovery after a joint replacement? Big things, 
that you can do beforehand as well as kind of early, early afterwards. Again, that healthy diet that we talked about, you know, don't smoke, keep your weight at a healthy level uh, and be active. You know, people that sit around that don't do a whole lot after any type of a surgery, high risk of blood clots, high risk of pneumonia, a whole bunch of other other, uh, conditions. I think the biggest thing I want my patients to do is I want them getting up and I want them getting moving as much as possible early on. And then also maintain, you know, reasonable activity level. Um, I had one guy a couple months ago that was doing box jumps two weeks after a hip replacement. That's not necessarily ideal. Um, so kind of find the, uh, the reasonable middle ground there. Um, was that your patient? It was. And what did you tell them? I said, please stop, or at least please don't tell me about it. And are there any activity limitations that someone can't do after getting a hip replacement? I recommend any, after any type of joint replacements, I recommend not running. That said, where I did fellowship in Boston, we had lots of patients every year that had multiple hip and knee replacements. One lady had all four done uh, that ran the Boston Marathon every year. With the current implants that we have, they are much have much better uh, durability and longevity than the previous generations. Uh, so realistically, I don't have any good data that says you shouldn't run. I would recommend against it. But I also tell patients if running is the type of thing that keeps your life going and keeps you sane, do running. You know, I, I think it's fine to do that in moderation, just knowing that there's a little bit increased risk. Um, other specific activities are dependent on the type of surgery you have. There's two main ways that hip replacements are done in the U.S., anterior and posterior. Um, there's a little bit different as far as risks of dislocation in various positions for those replacements. That said, I do both anterior and posterior. I don't put any precautions on my patients afterward. I want them to have full range of motion. And the big reason for those precautions is, again, dislocation uh, limitations. But I check the stability in their surgery to make sure that it, they can handle any range of motion they could physiologically get to. Can you go through some of the pros and cons of that anterior versus posterior approach just for people who are considering hip replacement surgery? Of course. Uh, so posterior is the more traditional approach has been around or been used more for a longer period of time. Uh, traditionally, the biggest risk of a posterior approach is dislocation. Uh, it used to be as high as 10%. Now it's down less, or down around 2% or less for lifetime of a hip replacement. Uh, the anterior approach has been billed as a muscle-sparing approach. You go between muscles instead of cutting muscles. Uh, the muscles do get beat up a fair amount during the surgery, so I'm fairly cautious about using the term muscle-sparing. Uh, but it does also have a lower uh, dislocation rate. Uh, majority of the benefits of the anterior approach are patients get up and moving a little bit faster in the first six weeks following surgery. Beyond six weeks, there's not much of a, of a benefit between or a difference between the two. Overall, I think they're both perfectly fine approaches, and some surgeons prefer one over the other. I prefer the anterior approach. I've got a partner that does posterior approach, and a well-done posterior approach versus a well-done anterior approach, I think the outcomes are probably going to be about the same. That's interesting. Um, and then what's the lifetime of these replacements? Phenomenal question. I get that a lot from patients. I always tell them I don't have a crystal ball to be able to tell you how long it's going to last. Uh, we know that hip replacements we were putting in 20 years ago, 90 to 95% of them are still in and functioning well at 20 years. Uh, we've changed some of the implants and the technology of how we make them now. So I would assume they're better. Uh, you know, if you forced me to make a prediction, I would say I would estimate 95% of hip replacements we're putting in now are going to be in and functioning well at 20 years. And it tends to kind of fall off at about 1% per year. So 95% of 20 years would mean probably about 85% of 30 years, something of that nature. That's rough ballpark. We'll obviously find out how long they're lasting in 20 years. Is there anything that you would want patients or referring doctors to know about hip replacements that they, they typically don't know? You know, as, or as far as for the patients themselves or for the physicians? Both. Referring? Both. Both. So I think for the patients to know is, it, yes, it is a very big surgery. There are absolutely risks to it. Uh, the risks are higher 
if you have diabetes, obesity, if you smoke, all their medical uh, conditions. But overall, it's an extremely successful surgery. Uh, 95% of people, again, are very happy that they had the surgery done and would go through it again. It's the most successful surgery in orthopedics. Uh, I think for a lot of referring uh, physicians and other uh, healthcare providers, a big thing to know is, you know, majority of hip arthritis presents as groin pain. I would say probably 50% of the patients I see some days have been worked up for prior possible hernia, other concerns, things of that nature, just because of where that pain is. So just kind of be aware they can present as pain anywhere around the uh, hip girdle. And also I tell patients, you know, just because you're coming to see me doesn't mean you're signing up for, near, for a hip replacement. This is a surgery. You make the decision of when you're ready to do, we get it done. So for the, the I, would, I would say this question is targeted for the primary care physicians or primary care providers that are listing. Um, are there, what are the physical exam maneuvers that would help you isolate and say this is hip pain versus groin pain, ilioinguinal pain, et cetera? Gotcha. So another thing to keep in mind is that there's a fair amount of overlap of hip pain and back pain or pain coming from the lumbar spine. Obviously, as a pain doc, you're very well uh, well versed in back pain issues. Um, so key things are you want to note that the pain is primarily around the groin and the hip area, not radiating down the leg. Uh, as far as examination, I check the range of motion. A lot of patients with hip arthritis can flex their hip up to about 90 degrees. Beyond that, we have they have what we call obligate external rotation, meaning the only way they can bring their knee up farther than that is to rotate their hips out or bring their knee out farther away from midline, which makes it very difficult for a lot of patients putting on shoes. Um, inability to tie shoes is actually one of the most common complaints I get from patients. I, I can't wear tied shoes anymore. Uh, other exam maneuvers doing a straight leg raise. Uh, to help rule out radiculopathy or make it less likely there's any type of radiculopathy going on, and a good uh, distal neurovascular exam to, again, look for any spine pathology. The two other main physical exam findings for hip arthritis, one is called the Stinchfield test, where the patient has their leg straight laying on their back, and they raise the leg up off the table, and you push down on their leg. If that reproduces their groin pain or their primary pain, that's a positive test. Another one is a log roll where they just lay on their back and you roll the leg like a log, internal and external. If that reproduces their pain primarily in the groin, that's a positive test as well. And I guess who who would not be a good candidate for a hip replacement surgery? I think patients who would not be a good candidate for it are patients with minimal arthritis. So if they don't have a lot of, if you can't see their arthritis on x-ray, they're usually not a good candidate for a joint replacement, usually concerned about other causes of pain. Patients that are morbidly obese, there's significantly higher complication rates with patients with a BMI over 40. Uh, that said, there is definitely some article or some uh, debate in the uh, literature on that. They do get benefit there, but high, but they're at higher risk for implant failure and complications. Um, you know, there's various other types of medical comorbidities that have to be kind of factored in, and it's kind of factoring in how healthy the patient is. Is undergoing anesthesia, which is typically with a spinal in most centers or general, uh, is that going to put them at higher risk than is you know, worthwhile for their hip replacement? Um, also, people with ongoing dental disease, dental bacteria, or oral bacteria has a tendency to get into the bloodstream and find the metal and plastic as well as a ceramic from a hip replacement and latch onto it. So if you have ongoing dental issues, that should be dealt with before any hip replacement to avoid the risk of hip uh, replacement infection. And then, again, th- these are questions for anyone who's considering um, hip replacement. So what is your stance on smoking before hip replacement? So I prefer all my patients not smoke. Uh, by and large, I want them at the very least to cut down as much as they can. Uh, there's higher risk of wound complications. Uh, that said, I, it's not a absolute line in the sand that they can't smoke, but I do definitely counsel they're much higher risk of wound complication, much higher risk of infection, much higher risk of other complications after surgery. 
Uh, I've had only one uh, wound complication on the anterior hips that I've been doing, and that was a lady that smoked, and you know she cut down on smoking, but kind of you could smell the tobacco on every time. So I don't think it's a hard stop, but it definitely is something to keep in mind that it elevates your risks of complications after surgery. And this is this question's a little bit more towards the medical end, but diabetes is is a continuum, and there's a measure called the hemoglobin A1C, or how much stickiness the sugar it has for your your red blood cells or how much sugar has, I guess, stuck to your red blood cells. And that's a measure of how well your blood glucose is, is controlled. So do you have a, 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 a hard line in the sand or is it more of a gray area for, your, for what you would use? Uh, so there's literature shown there's higher risk of infection. If your hemoglobin A1C, so your long-term blood sugar measurement is higher than eight and some literature shown higher than seven. So my hard line is they have to be below eight. Um, ideally, I want them seven or below just because it gets them back down to the risk profile of a regular person. Um, again, kind of like with the smoking as well as patients kind of on the borderline of obesity, I tell them, you know, you're at higher risk for complications, and I counsel them extensively on what those complications are and what they would entail. But it also it's a shared decision-making. They, they kind of make that decision. But, again, BMI much over 40 or hemoglobin A1C over 8 are hard cutoffs for me that I think the, uh, the risks definitely outweigh the potential benefits. And with these surgeries, most of them, 99% of them go really, really well. Um, what are some of the things that can go wrong with these hip replacement surgeries? Of course. Any type of surgery, as you all know, Chris, is there are potential infection complications. Uh, that is the biggest uh, concern for me. Risk of infection after a hip replacement is less than 1% lifetime. Uh, my personal risk is about 0.3% at our hospital, so very, very low risk. But if it happens, it's a catastrophic thing where you usually have to, you have to go in and do another surgery, either take some or all the parts out, get an IV for your arm for two months um, to get antibiotics in, and then potentially have to have an, another surgery uh, to redo the uh, components in there. That's kind of the biggest risk we worry about. Um, other risks, fracture. Uh, doing, during the surgery, there's a chance of fracture breaking the bones around there. If that happens during surgery, sometimes we'll put a little cable or a wire around the femur to stabilize it. It doesn't change anything as far as long-term outcomes. Uh, or if the patient was to fall after a surgery, they can fracture it just because the metal we're putting in is stronger than their bone, so they'll break a little bit. But that usually takes the amount of force that would normally break their bone anyways, just breaks in a different way. Uh, blood clots, we put everybody on usually aspirin for most patients to help reduce the risk of blood clots. Uh, heart attack, stroke are all theoretically possible around the time of surgery. Uh, they could have some stiffness, which is pretty uncommon. And then dislocation is another big risk that we worry about, As far, but we change how we put our components in and we check to make sure that the hip is very stable during surgery before we leave the operating room. Um, all those things added up, less than 5% chance of any major complication following a uh, hip replacement. So what do you do if someone does dislocate their hip replacement? Sure. So dislocation rate traditionally was about 10% back 20, 30 years ago. Uh, we changed the way we do the surgery and the components we use, and it's now probably less than 2% lifetime. Uh, for anterior approach, it's been reported as less than 0.3% in some studies. Uh, if they do have a dislocation, they go to the ER. Uh, we try and get it reduced in the emergency room under some sort of uh, IV medication. 60% of patients that have a dislocation would get it reduced, never have any problems. If they have recurrent dislocations or if there's obvious issues with where the parts are in, uh, we do a revision surgery to change those to make it more stable. So you're clearly very passionate about what you do. What, do you, what would you say is some of the most rewarding things about this particular profession? I think best part about it, I have the advantage of being a uh, military surgeon as well as an orthopedic surgeon. So I get to deal with a fair amount of military personnel as well as military retirees. 
it's a very gratifying uh, population to work with to uh, you know, be able to help out those who have done so much and sacrificed so much for our country. Um, and as far as the joint replacement surgery, I love it because my patients get better. Like, you know, it's a lot of times when I was on rotation, the medical student, you kind of see like internal medicine, you sort of feel like a lot of times that you see the same patients over and over again, you see them kind of gradually, you know, at best stay where they are and fair amount tend to uh, worsen over time. You know, my patients by and large, I see them at two months, two weeks after surgery, they're having a fair amount of people doing all right. And then I see them at two months, the majority of them are very happy they've had the surgery done. They're sending, take, showing me pictures of, you know, hiking that they hadn't done in years. They're out on their bikes, they're going fishing, they're doing things with their grandkids, uh, just being more active, just hearing their stories of what they're able to do now that they weren't able to do. Um, and so many of them say, you know, I wish I would have had this done years ago. You know, that for me is really gratifying to know, one, that I helped somebody, two, that they're happy I did it. Um, and then three, that their quality of life has improved. You know, it's a big surgery. Last thing I want to do is put somebody through a big surgery and have their quality of life be the same or worse. My goal is for them to get better. I want patients to get out there and be active and just hearing about their stories of how much better they're doing so quickly afterwards is really gratifying. Well, thank you for your service for helping those who have served and taken care of our country. But if you're working in the VA system, is there a way for um, a civilian to have you evaluate them and if needed, do their hip replacement, knee replacement? Uh, well, so I'm actually on the active duty military side. So patients, we get some VA patients. Um, unfortunately, there's not a way for somebody to have me see them. Uh, I will probably be getting out of the military in the next uh, 48 years. So after that, I will be happy to take all comers. Um, but unfortunately, if they don't have access to the TRICARE system or the VA system, there's not a direct way for me, unfortunately. Well, if uh, we did cover this in the knee replacement, but I'll ask you again. So if someone wants um, to find a fellowship-trained replacement specialist, how do they do that? I think a big key is looking at a lot of most practice, civilian practices have websites uh, and look up for the surgeon that you're considering. And most of them you want to see their, edu- look for their educational background. Uh, it should show medical school, most say an internship residency, and then you want to look for fellowship. And the fellowship should say it's in either adult reconstruction or arthroplasty or joint replacement or something along those lines. If you're not certain, you can always call their practice and ask, say, hey, is Dr. So-and-so, did she do a joint replacement fellowship, things of that nature. Any other closing thoughts? Uh, no, not that I can think of. It's a, it's a phenomenal surgery. I love doing it. It's my favorite surgery to do just because the outcomes are so great. And you know, Anytime you can do something for a patient and have 95% odds that they're going to be very happy that you did it, it's, it's always a good day. All right. Well, Dr. Dustin Schuett, thank you so much for taking the time. And again, thank you for taking care of um, the armed forces folks because they definitely need it with all the work that they put in. So, and again, thank you for taking the time for the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Good to be back, Chris. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again, and see you next time.